Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. This week, we dove deep into what in the world is going on in China. I was joined by Jacob Helberg, co-chair of the China Strategy Initiative at the Brookings Institute. Jacob is one of the most respected policy minds on this issue, and I wanted to have him on the program because he has a unique background in both policy as well as technology, previously serving as Google's global news policy lead. We dove into a wide range of topics in this discussion, including whether we're in a cold war with China, the idea of dual purpose technologies and how they can change the rules of the game, the right policy framework to be thinking about our engagement with China, and a host of solutions on what the US can and should do over the next decade. Welcome, Jacob. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, Jake, we're going to dive deep into all things China today, but with the technology perspective as a core to the geopolitical discussion, you know, you have a quote in your new book I want to start out with that frames the current conflict with China, you know, quite aptly. You said, today's conflict is ambiguous. The parties involved are often opaque. The weapons deployed are unconventional and asymmetric. The interests affected are substantial yet amorphous, and the policy frameworks to respond are ill-defined. A ton to unpack there, but let's start out with first, you know, just what's going on in the U.S. and China right now and, and the stakes of the situation. Well, I started my analysis working at a tech company, and basically the the uh, intellectual exercise that I was uh, going through was thinking through and unpacking myself on how should tech companies in the tech industry respond to new emerging trends that the country was experiencing. And that trend was basically boiled down to the tech industry and American tech companies are increasingly being caught in the crosshairs of geopolitics and governments both here and abroad increasingly viewing and treating the tech industry and technology companies as proxies and targets for their national power. So we see that with China, you know, uh, up until recently treating its uh, tech companies as national champions. Obviously it recently cracked down on its uh, lifestyle software companies, but it still very much views Huawei as a national champion and companies that it views as important. And we also see that with the way that they target to try to undercut and hack and undermine technologies uh, that are home to, uh, that are based in countries that they view adversarially. For example, China obviously routinely targets American companies. And so in response to this trend, uh, it dawned on me and it became very clear as I started looking at the array of different issues in the space that a predominant feature of today's international politics, when you take into account long-term trends and short-term daily events, is becoming the fact that gray zone conflict is increasingly a predominant feature of international politics. Countries nowadays, because of uh, how pervasive dual use technologies are, are increasingly competing and fighting in the murky gray zone between war and peace. They attack each other just beneath the conventional threshold of war because dual use technologies are very high impact and very potent and often invite uh, very little repercussions in terms of retaliations by an adversary. And so now it's really becoming uh, a tool of first resort and a way that international day-to-day -day international politics and political warfare is being done. Yep. And so two, two concepts to unpack there, right? So one is this idea of a gray zone, right? And, and this is, you've labeled this situation as a gray war, which is an interesting phrase because I think the the modern kind of scholastic debate is really between whether we're in a cold war or not, right? So I want you to unpack 
what a gray war is and what that means. And then the, the second term you just used, which I think is interesting also, is this idea of dual use technologies, right? And, and playing, you know, kind of the field of war with dual use technologies, you know, as opposed to more singular use technologies or kind of war, war laden technologies. So maybe unpack both of those concepts for us. What is the idea of a gray war? And then talk a little bit more about, you know, what are dual use technologies? So dual use, so the gray war at a high level is basically the basic idea that today uh, the we are finding ourselves in a generalized environment of what military experts refer to as gray zone conflict. Gray zone conflict refers to when two geopolitical actors, most often two great powers, attack each other uh, in you know what's called the gray zone, which is the the zone of the attack zone beneath the conventional threshold of war, but obviously uh, attacks are not peace. So you're between war and peace. Uh, you are attacking an adversary just in a way that is just short of war, in a way that doesn't amount to a declaration of war. But it's obviously, as Orwell once phrased it, a state of unpeace. It's a peace that is no peace. And uh, dual use technologies, and the reason that we that today's environment is uh, a generalized environment of where gray zone conflict is part of our everyday life is because dual use technologies are so deeply embedded in everything that we do that it has made the potential for gray zone conflict in incredibly high impact. So uh, the, the potential for IP theft and stealing billions of dollars of value in uh, very, very expensive research and development uh, can be done through dual use technologies, the potential to uh, unmask spy networks that countries have had. I mean, for centuries, countries have, have been doing espionage on each other. Today, you can actually unmask a lot of spy networks uh, by you know, hacking uh, government agencies. Like for example, uh, the Chinese government hacked the Office of Personnel Management and therefore got a list of uh, a substantial number of federal employees that have top secret clearance, which is obviously not great for American national security. Um, you can uh, do things like uh, get private, sensitive private information on individuals to potentially blackmail them. So the impact is significant and it has a very corrosive impact on the national sovereignty of a country. And yet uh, it still falls short of a, of a declaration of war. And that's why I call it the gray war. Yeah, and so the the framework is interesting because basically I think you know we're we're normally used to thinking about wars as being over physical territories, right? Obviously that's that's super relevant in, in the case of China as well. But as we push into a world in which our digital lives, as you just pointed out, start to take more and more mind share, right, versus our physical lives, um, this impact of dual use technologies in war becomes becomes um, pretty meaningful or pretty impactful. You've described it as a battle of two fronts: a front end battle and a back end battle. Maybe you can break kind of both of those down for us and, and tell us what both of those mean. Yeah, so uh, there are two fronts to this gray war, um, especially in the tech sphere. There is the software layer of the internet, which is uh, basically amounts to, it's a, I refer to it as a two front war. So at the software layer of the internet, it's about the information that everyday internet users see on the front end of their screen. It's content, it's software, you know, software applications. The, the, this was obviously put on full display in 2016 when Russia interfered in our elections, but 
Uh, we have, as a country, also seen vivid examples of the front end battle throughout the coronavirus pandemic with China conducting very aggressive information operations to discredit democracy, you know, show how efficient their system is. Like, for example, they pushed a video that showed that the Chinese government um, built a hospital in two weeks uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. They have been pushing narratives saying that the coronavirus pandemic uh, emanated uh, originated from lobsters in the state of Maine, from a military base, uh, from an American military base, all kinds of narratives to basically discredit democracy, discredit the U.S. and promote their government. And so that's the front end side of the battle that has many players. Russia was the first mover, but today you have China, you have Iran, you have uh, obviously, you know, Russia is still very much involved because the barrier to entry is very low. Software is very cheap and the barrier to entry is very low. On the, uh, on the back end, you have the hardware layer of the internet, and that is ultimately the decisive front of where the future of this gray war battle is going to be decided. Uh, and because we're talking about hardware, you only hardware is much more expensive, it's much more complicated, and you only have two players in the space. You have the US and you have China. And obviously China has been very aggressively trying to push and sell Huawei abroad. Uh, not be out of political philanthropy, but because it sees a real political ROI and benefit to seeing other countries use its internet infrastructure. And the reason is that if you control the guts of the internet, the physical internet infrastructure, the physical information infrastructure of the internet, you can uh, compromise and um, extract, manipulate, and block all the data that runs across the network. And ultimately, that's exactly uh, the benefit that China sees. Uh, and as I point out in the book, there's actually a really interesting study that was conducted in the early 2010s by KPN, which was a Dutch telecom network in the Netherlands that basically came to just that conclusion that using Huawei, they, they did an analysis of the Huawei network and they basically, the 5G network, and they basically came to the conclusion that it ultimately posed a significant cybersecurity risk because Huawei had the ability to basically see all the cell phone numbers, the content of conversations across, you know, with members of the Dutch parliament. Uh, it could basically see everything that flowed across this network. And ultimately, one could only ask themselves, what happens to a country's sovereignty if you have the Chinese government that knows all the secrets of all the judges, all the journalists, and all the politicians of your country, uh, all the financial dealings, all of the sexual, you know, escapades and uh, transgressions, and it is fundamentally corrosive to a country's sovereignty, and that's why it's a major national security threat. There's a big layer of consumerism and American capitalism that sits as a backdrop to this, and and what I mean by that is, you know, this this kind of idea or this shift hasn't been. Uh, hasn't been something that's happened overnight, right? So we're seeing a lot of the implications of this play out on the front end, the back end, as you mentioned, software and hardware. Um, but the main street kind of thought and practice from an economic perspective over the last 30 years has been outsourcing to China, right? Cheap and readily available, empowered American consumerism, the iPhones, you know, so on and so forth. Just talk a little bit more about kind of this layer of, um, I think you framed it pretty interestingly in the book, which is you know, one way you can think about this is around a framework of competition, right? Which is a true economic framework. The other way you can think about this is a framework around sovereignty, right? Geopolitics, sovereignty, et cetera. I want you to talk a little bit more 
just about the shift kind of, and maybe you can paint the context of what we've seen over the last 30 years in terms of outsourcing a whole bunch of supply chain and physical goods to China, you know, and then how that's playing out now in your, in your front end and kind of back end framework. So I think the, the intellectual evolution of, of, um, uh, of America's foreign policy, you know, establishments thinking uh, on the issue of China has, as you point out, evolved quite a bit over the last few years. The ethos after the Cold War, especially in the late 90s, was that uh, democracy really had the wind at its back. And so obviously at that point in time, the predominant thesis was, let's just, we can uncorrelate, we can decouple our national security you know, political priorities, our political agenda from our economic agenda. Because ultimately, if you trade, that will ultimately create a feedback loop that will serve your political agenda. So with China, we basically decided that there, we made a calculated decision that if we went ahead and opened trade with them, admitted them to the WTO, you know, uh, granted them most favored nation status, that ultimately they would prosper and, and a Chinese middle class would want a lot of the basic individual civil liberties as the middle class of many other advanced countries, which would be to be politically democratic. We did lost, lost that bet. That was a bet that did not pan out, obviously. And today we're paying a very big cost for that. And so now I think we're at a juncture where we're really trying to, uh, where the American foreign policy establishment is really revisiting a lot of old assumptions. Obviously, there was the assumption that uh, as China would go richer, it would become freer. That didn't pan out. There was the assumption that you know China was primarily interested in a peaceful rise, uh, and obviously now you know they have embarked on the largest military expansion that uh, that we have seen in modern history. There was the assumption that they would only want to be a regional power, but they're obviously undertaking uh, the the Belt and Road Initiative, which is completely global. Um, so all of these assumptions that we made that basically justified having a very, very lax and accommodative policy towards China uh, were simply, you know, misguided. And so I think today, unfortunately, we have to revisit a lot of these things. And ultimately, one of the really painful assumptions to revisit is the first one that I talked about, this idea that you can decouple politics from economics, because now, at, you know, 20 years into this policy, and our business community has billions of dollars invested in the Chinese market and all in the form of all kinds of investments, whether it's supply chains, investments in um, um, you know, assembly lines. And you know, Apple obviously sells a lot of phones in China. So for some sectors and industries, um, the demand side of the equation is important, for example, for Hollywood as well. And unfortunately, I think you know, sometimes we have now reached a point where uh, the interest, what's good for business, isn't always good for America as a whole. And the US Congress is going to have to work on laying down some basic ground rules to deconflict that dynamic moving forward. Yeah, the framework of competition versus kind of geopolitical or so becomes interesting, especially when you start thinking about specific examples. So let's let's talk about an example that kind of, you know, everybody can resonate with either they're users of the app or they have, you know, they know people that are users of the app uh, in, in TikTok, right? How would you view that, you know, what's one way to frame kind of the TikTok situation 
if we look at it through the lens of you know war geopolitics strategic importance versus a lens of competition and i think a lot of the shortfall often in policy or the way we talk about it is because we're viewing it through the lens of competition and that that assumes to your point around assumptions that assumes general principles of business right versus kind of a whole other underneath you know layer that's not necessarily a part of the conversation so I think this, the TikTok example kind of circles back to what happens to your sovereignty when a country has access to so much data about your citizens in your country. And that's kind of fundamentally the heart of the question. Uh, that's the heart of the cybersecurity question with TikTok. I'm going to zoom out a little bit because, and, and talk about TikTok poses, you know, reasons that the U.S. government should take actions against TikTok are a little bit multifold. You know, there is the core security, cybersecurity issue, which is that it poses a massive um, hole in our, you know, the privacy of our companies, our citizens, and our security apparatus. But then there are a number of other considerations, like the fact that TikTok is a subsidiary of ByteDance, which has, which is believed to be compliant and complicit in ass assisting and abetting the Chinese government uh, carrying out genocidal activities against Uyghurs in China. Do we want to have a company that's tied to genocide in the United States profit off the American market? I don't think, I think that the argument for that is quite weak. Um, there is the issue of reciprocity. Um, you know, there's the basic question I think that a lot of Americans will reasonably raise, which is China doesn't allow a single of our content platforms to be operate in China. Uh, what is the business case for allowing TikTok to now be the fastest social media app in the U.S.? Uh, and not only that, but China doesn't even allow TikTok in China. So, <laughs> you know, I, it's, uh, I do think that uh, the only, the argument that's in favor of, you know, that's against the reciprocity argument is really an intellectual purity argument. It's, oh, but, you know, we're about free trade. We're not about restricting companies. Um, and then I think there's the, the meat of the issue, which is that it poses a major national security risk. And we saw that with uh, when India and China had um, uh, a skirmish at the border where obviously, uh, you know, there was investigative reporting that kind of discussed what would happen if uh, some, some of the Indian soldiers at the border had TikTok on their phones or had apps that were Chinese apps, and all of a sudden the Chinese military can pinpoint the exact location of soldiers at the border? Well, the problem with TikTok isn't the data that the Chinese get with people dancing in their living rooms. The problem is that TikTok basically vacuums up data from your phone, including your location, everything you're copying and pasting on your phone, sometimes your photos. Um, it vacuums up so much data from your actual cell phone, from the device itself, that that is what poses a major risk. And so uh, it is, I, I think that the argument in favor, the value that we get for keeping TikTok and the argument, you know, the intellectual purity argument, I don't really believe because fundamentally today, you know, the argument in favor of, of keeping TikTok is what makes us, you know, what makes us America is that our internet is completely open and completely free. What makes China, China is that they have a closed internet, closed society. But fundamentally, I think that's misguided. What makes us America is that we're democratic. It's not that we have an internet without any laws or any rules, is that our laws are democratic. They're the product of an independent legislature. They're reviewed by an independent judiciary. They're scrutinized by a press, a, you know, an, an uncensored press. And what makes China China is that they are authoritarian 
authoritarian and they do not have any checks and balances. They don't have any accountability. And so fundamentally, I don't really believe in the intellectual purity argument that we can't take action against TikTok because otherwise, you know, it makes us a closed society. We have taken action as a country against a lot of different entities and we have restrictions on a lot of different entities on grounds of national security. We have the Foreign Agents uh, Registration Act. Uh, we obviously place sanctions on Iranian and Russian entities when there are moments of geopolitical disputes. So I don't think it's philosophically misaligned with principles that we've had as in the past as a country to sometimes when we view that there is a major national security risk at stake to be able to say, you know what, this entity is not going to be allowed to do business in the U.S. because there's a bigger interest at stake. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we've had these frameworks, as you mentioned, for a long time. I mean, anytime a, a deal of any significance happens, we, you know, you have a CFIUS review, like we, we have these kind of frameworks and such. Yes. Um, I'm curious how you think about kind of that balance more from maybe we can abstract one layer above of what you were just saying, kind of from a systematic level, which is, you know, today is, you know, we're recording this in kind of early November 2021. You know, there's a framework of kind of companies that exist at scale. And what you do with those, whether it's TikTok, whether it's you know the NBA's relationship with China, Apple, so on and so forth, as you mentioned, right? There's a lot of intertwined uh, kind of elements there from an American commercial perspective. And then there's also kind of companies that start today, right? Like day zero companies and, and such. I'm curious how you know you think about kind of the framework for both you know companies that exist today that are at scale that clearly have very large impacts on the American economy that are intertwined as well as frameworks on how you think about companies that are starting kind of from day zero today, which don't have that impact or scale, um, you know, but we're both in technology and the, and the vision and the hope and the belief is obviously that these startups do have, you know, impact and scale. Maybe you can break, you know, a conceptual perspective down on, on both of those frameworks. Well, I think companies that start today, I mean, one of the things that, um, so I guess I'll, I'll answer that question in two parts. The first is, I think that with respect to um, how, from a policy standpoint, we should think about our relate, you know, economic uh, interdependence and entanglement with China, I think ultimately will require a bit of uh, intellectual legwork in terms of divvying up the suite of products into three categories, which is basically there's the category of products that are so essential to American security, that they have to be made here in the US. Uh, then there's the category of products where it's not essential and we don't care where it comes from because it doesn't really matter. Uh, you could, you know, arguably tennis shoes, for example, don't really aren't essential for national security uh, purposes. Um, and then there's the category of products that are that's important that we don't want it to be made in China because we don't want it to be compromised, but it can be made in some sort of allied space. It could be made in India, it could be made in you know uh, Western Europe, it, it could be made in Australia. It doesn't have to be made here in the US. And, and so I think divvying up you know the universe of products into those three categories, I think is ultimately uh, going to be important you know to basically go about this, in a slightly more methodical, organized way. Um, with respect to new versus old, you know, new companies versus old companies, I do think that there's an opportunity for new companies. A lot of, I mean, one of the things that I find encouraging is that a lot of new companies today are coming of age at a, in a climate that is philosophically and intellectually very different than companies that, you know, were coming of age 20 years ago when 
for example, when Amazon, when you know Google, when when all of the, when all of these big giants were being started 20 years ago, the predominant ethos uh, of the time was that it was perfectly fine to do business in China, and China was like this El Dorado, this new frontier, and so obviously a lot of these companies built up a significant footprint in China over those years. Today, I think that uh, there's a, I actually find talking with founders that a lot of founders are actually quite sophisticated about, you know, they, they understand that fundamentally the U.S., be, the relationship between the U.S. and China is not a friendly one. And a lot of founders are prioritizing other emerging markets when they think about international expansion other than China, because they know that they have benefited from the hindsight of the last 20 years. And they have seen that the, the list of American companies that have spent billions of dollars trying to make it in the Chinese market and have completely fallen flat on their face is very long and continues to grow every day. I mean, as you know, Yahoo just got you know pulled out of the Chinese market after a fraught relationship with China for 20 years. LinkedIn just left the Chinese market. Um, so I think they have been able to see that uh, the general rule of thumb in China is that American companies just don't win. And it really doesn't matter what insight, what CCP insider you hire, you're not going to win because you're an American company. And that's not how the Chinese system works. It doesn't really allow um, foreign players to, you know, dominate industries in the Chinese market. And so I think a lot of founders are rightly and appropriately looking elsewhere, you know, looking into India, for example, I mean, Sequoia, uh, which obviously had, you know, a really big footprint in China, also started now a new fund that's focused on the Indian market, which I think is a great idea. You know, they have a fund focused on Europe. Um, and I think it's a healthy thing for our business community to start to realize that international expansion, I mean, there's, it's a really big world out there and there isn't just China, you know? So this notion that if you want to be a big company, you have to go to China, I think it's false. I mean, India is a, is the country that is just as big as China from a population standpoint. It is because its its GDP is smaller, the potential for growth is much greater. And Nigeria is obviously the fastest growing country in the, on the African continent. Um, so there are lots of emerging markets that uh, American companies can do very well in that don't pose the unique risks that the Chinese market poses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it ultimately comes back to the, if we abstract it at the highest level, it's, it's kind of the type of world we want to live in, right? It's an authoritarian, exactly. world, democratic world, et cetera. Right. So let's, let's take, let's talk about some solutions you put forth in the book on kind of how to think about this paradigm. We'll, we'll talk specific solutions. I've got a couple that I want to dive into that I, I thought were really creative and interesting, but I want to take a step back before we go into specifics, because an overarching theme you talk about with any of these solutions it's kind of this idea of pairing Silicon Valley, pairing the best of Silicon Valley, the best of government, you know, together, right? And I think it's it's no secret that there's there's quite a fraught, you know, relationship in many many respects, you know, between technology and the government right now on on both sides of the aisle, right? Um, I want you to speak a little bit more about kind of that idea of what you mean by and what you think about pairing Silicon Valley with government, and then we can jump into some of the specific ideas. Well, that fundamentally. So many of the challenges we face as a country requires some sort of uh, the solution to so many of our challenges will require some sort of technology component to it. I don't think you can solve almost any of our challenges without technology being part of the solution. 
part of the reason is that technology allows you to basically have nonlinear outcomes. You can have with technology, you know, in, in classic economics, uh, people refer to this as productivity. For every unit of person, you can have a higher output with technology because it makes your population much more productive. But it's the same thing in geopolitics and in um, military affairs. If you have, you know, you can have a military of 100,000 people, but if the, that 100,000 people has the best equipment out there, it can actually do much, much more uh, than, you know, the, mil uh, the military, the size of, you know, 300,000 people that's ill-equipped. And so I think it, it really is an imperative for the future, the economic security, the uh, strategic security of the country that our best and brightest engineers and founders are thinking about ways to help America's foreign policy agenda. Uh, and conversely, for a policymaking community to not treat Silicon Valley like an adversary and in an abrasive way. At the end of the day, as I talk about in the book, uh, there are many reasons for which there has been a trust deficit that has built up between you know, the, uh, the valley and the hill. Uh, and, and so, you know, there's a generational gap. The average age of uh, an employee at Apple and Google is 31, 32. Uh, the average age of someone, the median age of someone in the Senate is, of a member of the Senate is 63. So these are people that obviously came of age with fundamentally different experiences, different times, different generations. Um, Silicon Valley is much more comfortable with taking risks and moving fast. Uh, it's primarily, you know, made up of individuals that have a background in engineering and product management. Obviously, almost everyone in Congress is a professionally trained attorney, which, you know, skews towards more risk averse individuals. Um, so the culture is very, di very different, but ultimately you need both to solve a lot of the challenges. And so, you know, I kind of go into a whole host of detail about uh, how the two communities can bridge the gap and and potentially, um, and potentially work much more collaboratively together to solve big problems. Yeah, let's let's go into some of those ideas. Uh, the first one I really liked in the book was this idea of a digital defense of democracy. I wanted to unpack that, kind of tell us what that means, and then and then kind of walk through some of the implications and, and how to enact that. Well, at, at a philosophical, at a very, I mean, I'll talk about high level first principles and go into more tactical detail. So, at a high level first principles. What do we mean by defense? We mean defense in a war. So we need to defend ourselves in a warring environment. And I think that it is really important that we stop calling the current geopolitical struggle between the US and China as a competition because countries can afford to lose competitions. They can't afford to lose wars. When you lose a war, it's about your political survival. When you're in a war, you accept short-term sacrifice. When you're in a war, you are unified as a country around the single objective of winning that war. And that is the kind of focus and determination and urgency that we need to meet this challenge uh, and, and also be unified as a country around uh, a, a common objective. Um, at a more tactical level, I think that as China basically uses 21st century tools to build out 20th century spheres of influence, what I call techno blocks in the book, I think it is very important that we think about ways of 
basically building, you know, fortifying uh, our own digital defenses against a Chinese technical bloc. And one of the main ideas that I put forth in the book is uh, amounts to uh, deglobalizing China's internet. So basically, uh, changing the way that we think about foreign aid, for example, to include technology, equipment, technology infrastructure uh, to these countries to basically alleviate any kind of incentive that they have to take uh, 5G equipment from China. Yeah. Talk about the techno block uh, idea. That's a really interesting idea, right? So this idea of a techno trading block, right? We've, we've kind of observed, and I think it's coming more into mainstream light that over the last 30 years of US foreign policy, as we've been you know, fighting wars, trying to instill democracy, China has been kind of fighting an economic war, right? And instilling authoritarianism, right? And their perspective on the world. So this techno trading block idea is really interesting. And I think it ties to a lot of the themes we were talking about earlier of balancing commercial interests and political interests. So maybe help us understand that concept a little bit more. So if China exports its internet infrastructure to other countries, it Chinese, uh, the Chinese companies that will be operating that infrastructure in other countries will be answerable to Chinese laws. And what that means is that China will de facto have control over all of the data that throws through the infrastructure in those countries. That is a very neo-colonialist uh, policy that basically allows China to have back doors into the networks of a whole host of countries abroad in ways that, as we were saying earlier in our discussion, fundamentally undermine their sovereignty. Yep. Conversely, we are based, democracy is based on decentralization. China is based on centralization. The Chinese government in Beijing would have centralized control over access of that data. For us, what success looks like isn't the American government having control over that data. What success looks like is um, countries be, you know, having access to an a free internet where companies can operate freely, where people can express themselves freely. So for us, the paradigm is very different. What we need to do is basically uh, freeze Chinese information infrastructure operators out of those markets so that if, we, if they operate on our infrastructure, that will be a vehicle for free, for free expression, for uh, personal privacy, for a lot of the values that uh, American companies comply with in American law. And so, uh, you know, it's that that's basically what the techno block concept is. It's about deglobalizing China's information infrastructure to export our own in order to make sure that the values that ends up governing the infrastructure of third party countries is reflective of values that are about free speech, free expression, personal privacy, and not values uh, of autocratic control. Yep. I think, and I think by definition, so there's an interesting kind of technological parallel to this political parallel, which is if you put kind of American society all the way on the left as a barbell and Chinese society all the way on the right, you kind of have this spectrum of democracy versus authoritarianism, right? And as, as you were just mentioning, ideas of decentralization always lend more to democratic perspectives or democratic principles, as opposed to, of course, centralized or controlled principles, which leads to authoritarian. You talked in the book about the idea, and we've talked a little bit about it in this discussion today, about technological decoupling as a security imperative and an economic imperative. 
I'm curious for you to, or I'd love for you to lay out that framework a little bit more, but I'm also curious what the impact of crypto and actual decentralization technology itself, you know, plays into this framework and, and just how you're thinking about, you know, kind of the shift and such, because I think that's actually the idea of an authoritarian country blocking out decentralization technology. And, you know, there's a lot of political discussion, policy discussion in the US right now about how we think about crypto. Um, but that is the next platform shift. And in many ways, that platform shift aligns very closely, you know, with our core uh, democratic principles, of course, as opposed to authoritarian principles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, basically, Peter Thiel has been very vocal lately talking about how crypto is fundamentally democratic and because it's about decentralized control. AI is fundamentally authoritarian because it's about centralized control. You know, it's about amassing massive data sets, pattern recognition. It's about creating, you know, uh, actually the eye of Sauron expression that I use in my book was an expression that he coined, you know, this eye that can see all things in all places at all times. I think that, I mean, the there's a kernel in truth in his observation. And I think he actually very astutely observed that, um, Actually, he observed this several years ago. Uh, he's been talking about China's contempt for crypto uh, several years ago before you know the Chinese government ultimately banned it. And I think he's right. I mean, I think fundamentally, you know, crypto is a tool of decentralization and trend and uh, and and decentralized control, which is something that is completely antithetical to the CCP's desire to want to control everything. And you know you kind of see that in Peter's observation when he contrasts AI and crypto. What China is doing is it's basically de-anonymizing the internet with over 400 million CCTV cameras that it has on every street corner of Beijing, uh, where it's able to triangulate data from people's cell phone data with payments data, with CCTV camera data and facial recognition. It's a, you, it is becoming very hard to be anonymous, an anonymous internet user in China. Yeah. If you say things that are negative to the CCP, your social score is going to go down, your opportunities are going to get curtailed, and you might end up in prison the next day because the Chinese government can track you down in a second. And so interestingly, I mean, uh, the issue with crypto that American policymakers struggle with isn't the fact that it's decentralizing control. I think actually culturally, we're predisposed to be very much, much more comfortable with decentralized control. I think the issue that uh, policymakers struggle with is basically for the most part um, to a significant extent about money laundering. I think there's a real uh, strong money laundering you know, problem that a lot of policymakers are very concerned about for reasons that aren't totally illegitimate, you know, that's why they're pushing for ideas like know your customer, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and, and the issue of drug money, you know, illicit money that is basically being exploited uh, by crypto networks. And, you know, obviously a canonical example is that the, the, the Taliban that were uh, selling a lot of the opium um, being grown in Afghanistan were using crypto to basically get money for the opium that they were selling. And those are, I mean, you know, drugs, illicit flows of drugs are billions and billions of dollars a year. Uh, uh, money laundering is also 
I mean, these, you know, they're not small issues. I think the reason that you're seeing policymakers be so vocal about it is because they're actually, in terms of dollars, it's like hundreds of billions of dollars. It's actually like very, a, a very large problem. And, and so I, I do think that that, if you, if the crypto space figures out a way to solve those problems, I think most of the regulatory roadblocks basically go away. Uh, I think the challenge is that because of the nature of how crypto works, I'm not, I don't think people have figured out a way to solve that just yet, but uh, I wouldn't count out the ingenuity and creativity of our engineers to figure out some sort of way to go about this. Yep. Jacob, as we, as we round out the conversation, um, I, I could ask you, I'm tempted to ask you kind of the impossible question of what do you think the next 10 years looks like for US and China? I think so much of that as we're kind of bringing out in the discussion as a function of of policy frameworks and, and kind of leadership of the country. Um, so I won't ask that question, but I will ask you to explain one analogy used in the book um, that I think is a nice summation for folks to kind of understand where we are in this dynamic. And, and that analogy you used was that the US is facing an AOL moment, right? Talk to us a little bit about what is an AOL moment. And I, I think that's a nice way to kind of round out our discussion of just you know, the stakes of which we've talked about a lot, but really what is unique about this specific moment in time, you know, where we're at right now? Well, the AOL moment I describe is basically about how incredibly fast uh, shifts in power can change, um, can change sometimes. Uh, power shifts can happen very suddenly. AOL obviously was a massive platform for a good chunk of the 90s and then uh, you know fell from grace really really fast with the surge of Google. And so I think that what we saw with China's launch of a hypersonic missile only re-emphasizes this idea that we can't take for granted our technological edge. We can't take for granted, you know, we can't take for granted any aspect of our political and geostrategic superiority vis-a-vis -vis China, because China is catching up really fast and it's already caught up in a whole host of domains. And arguably in the realm of hypersonic missiles, it might actually have a slight edge on us in certain areas. And so we need to um, hope for the best, but we really need to prepare for the worst. And, and that means, you know, as I said earlier, uh, thinking about this as a war because we need to approach it with absolute paramount urgency because the situation is very dire. I think the question today isn't whether or not we're in a cold war or a gray war. I think the question is um, how do we prevent the gray and cold war that we're in from becoming hot? Because that is the direction of travel that we're headed in with China's military buildup, with you know their irrevocable promises to reunify Taiwan, with um, uh, a lot of the patterns of behavior that uh, they've in engaged in, you know, military drills with Russia, all signs point to a potential culminating crisis in the Asia Pacific that could take the shape of you know a Cuban. Uh, uh, a crisis of the type of the Cuban style, you know, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis in, from 1962. You could see crisis uh, uh, materialize in a number of ways in that region, but all signs point to a looming crisis. And we're simply not prepared to face that crisis right now. And so the last thing we need is to 
when that crisis arise, uh, you know, be caught completely incapable of responding. And we need to be prepared. We need to show that America's, you know, political power in the world still matters, that our allies can count on us, that the American order isn't simply going to be swept away uh, in, a, in a single, you know, hot spot. And I think that fundamentally what's on the line in the South China Sea is Taiwanese democracy, uh, our supply of you know, various economic interests that we have, but it's fundamentally the, about the credibility of American power. And it's so important that we preserve that uh, for everything. You know, if we want to be able to lead globally on all the issues we hold dear as a country. Jacob, this was this was awesome. This was super, you know, super educational and insightful. So I, I appreciate you taking the time and and coming on to do a, a slightly different, you know, episode of the podcast we usually do and talking about specific businesses or industries. But it's a nice kind of framing, you know, of where the U.S. tech industry is in in larger uh, in a larger stratosphere and how that can be used, you know, for for positive in in the world. So appreciate you taking the time to come on and um, and uh, enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me on. I enjoyed it too.